pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and for your love for us, which is deep, which is unconditional. Help us to see that tonight and help us to see how we must respond to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now last week, many of you would know, we had a team from Deakin University. They spent the whole week with us. And I spent one session with them during the week talking to them about the life of a minister. What does a minister get up to during the week? What's the job of a minister? And so I spent some time talking to them. And so what do you guys think? What is the job of a minister? How does a minister spend his week? Now you know the joke, right? It is a joke. Ministers have the best job in the world because they only work one day a week. They're incomprehensible on Sundays and invisible all the other days. That's a joke. It's not true. (laughs) And it's a joke. But what is the job of a minister? Well, in one sense it is. uh, I consider one of the best jobs in the world. Not because it's a one day a week job, not that at all. But because I get to spend my time doing things I enjoy, things I think are important. And so to sum this up for you, what's the job of a minister? How does a minister spend his week? Really three things. Firstly, I get to do evangelism and that is to persuade those outside the kingdom that they need to come into the kingdom. So that's the first thing, bring people into the kingdom, evangelism. The second thing is edification, that is the building work and that is to encourage those inside the kingdom to stay in the kingdom, to grow up and mature in the kingdom. So evangelism, those outside, bring them in. Edification, those inside, build them up. And the third one is this. This is the shake-up work, shaking people up work. And that is to show those who think they're inside the kingdom that they're in fact outside the kingdom and need to come in. Do you get that one last one? To persuade, to convince, to show those who think they're inside the kingdom, kingdom that they're in fact outside the kingdom and they must come in. And so today... Our focus will be largely on this last one. You see, one of my greatest fears as a pastor, and really the fears of any pastor, and I'm sure Chris as well, is for anyone in the church to hear the frightening words of Jesus. Now, do you know what those frightening words are? This is on the last day, the day of judgment, and we read this in Matthew. Jesus said this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Now just consider those words. Imagine they were the words you heard from the Lord Jesus on the day of judgment. They're frightening words, terrifying words. No minister wants to hear that. No minister wants any of their members to hear that. You see, this is how they've spent their lives, fooling themselves, deluding themselves, convincing themselves that they're inside the kingdom, whereas they never were. And so my questions to you tonight are these. In your heart of hearts, do you know where you really stand? In your heart of hearts, are you outside or are you inside or do you only think you're inside? And so tonight we're going to spend some time reflecting on that and hoping, hoping, 
hoping that we'll get some clarity on where you'll stand. Now, as we think back about Hosea and the people of Israel during that time, these people at this stage, they knew that they were outside the kingdom. Despite the relationship they had with God, despite the promises that God made to them, they at this time knew that they've turned their backs on God. They've turned, instead of to the God of the universe, they've turned to the idols of the land. They've prostituted themselves to blocks of stone and wood and they've preferred raisin cakes, remember that? Raisin cakes instead of the God of the universe. And so at this point in time, they've come to realise this is bad, this is terrible. They've come to realise we're in fact on the outside now. You see, their outright rejection of God, it's not working for them. They're bending their knees to sticks and stones. That's not working for them now. And they're coming to realise we're in fact outside. And so we want to come back in. We want to come back into the kingdom of God. And here they had the best of intentions. There's this clarion core, a core to the people to come and to know. To come and to know. And so here what we see is a short song from the people of Israel to the people of Israel. It's a song to them, calling them, calling the people, let's come back to God, let's come back to him, he'll help us, he'll heal us, he'll restore us. And, and so just a chapter earlier, we read that God is like this lion who's, who's punishing them, who's judged them. God says early in chapter 5 verse 14, just flip the page and you'll see this. Chapter 5 verse 14, I will tear them to pieces and go away. I will carry them off with no one to rescue them. And so they know the judgment of God, they've experienced the judgment of God, and now their call is to the people, come back to God, let's come back to him, because we've got nowhere else to go. And so that's what we read here, chapter 6, verse 1. Come, they're calling the people, come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. And so here they, they know what God is capable of. And so they, they want people to come back to God that they might be healed. In fact, they were so confident that though they as a nation, they were wasting away, they've experienced judgment and they are experiencing judgment from God, they were confident that God can, in a sense here, resurrect them, resurrect them as a nation. And we get a glimpse here of the resurrection power of God. And so verse 2, have a look. After two days he will revive us. On the third day he will restore us that we may live in his presence. You see, they were confident of this. They know things are bad. It's not working. Worshipping idols, it's not working. Let us come back to God. And they were confident. They had good intentions. Coming back to God, God would heal them. And so what else do we see? And, and now they, they've not just called the people to come, but they've called the people to know God as well. Come back and know, acknowledge God. Know that God is God and not those stones and wood. Know that God is God. And so their call is to come back with all good intentions. And they've, had, they've got every confidence here that God would appear, appear, that God would respond to them when they return to him. And so we see this, verse 3. Let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge him. As surely as the sun rises, he will appear. He will come to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains that water the earth. You see, they, they knew that 
that God will always turn towards them in love if they return to him. They had good intentions. Let's come back to God. Things are bad. Let's put it in the past. Let's come back to God. And so this was their song. These three verses, their clarion call, come back. But what did God think about their call? What did God think about their good intentions? How did God respond to their song? We, we see here that God actually sees right into their hearts. Their hearts weren't there. They did not come back with genuine repentance. They in fact, in fact did not come back with any admission of sin or guilt. But they came back presuming that they can take advantage of the love of God. And so they've taken a wrong approach back to God. And so God here, he shows his frustration with them and he responds to their song now in these next few verses. God responds, where's the love? Where's the loyalty? Where's the genuineness of the heart? Where's your sincerity? God's thinking here, you're really just coming back to use me. And so we see, verse 4, have a look. What can I do with you, Ephraim? What can I do with you, Judah? Your love is like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears. Now, now do you get the picture that God is painting there? The illustration of their love. Just like the dew and mist in the morning, it's here one minute, next minute it's gone, it's evaporated, it's disappeared, it's no more. And so God was describing, this is the fickleness of your love and loyalty. Where is your love? Where is your love? And so in a sense, they've sung their song. God now responds and God dismisses their song as inadequate. God dismisses their good intentions as inadequate. Where's your love? But then God also gets them to open their eyes. Can't you see? In a sense, God's getting them to see. Can't you see that the judgment you've experienced and the judgment you're experiencing right now, this is serious stuff. What you have done, turning to the idols, bowing your knees to stones and sticks of wood, that is wrong, that is evil, that is serious. You've committed adultery against me. You've committed idolatry against me. And so God is he's not taking this lightly. He's like, you can't ignore this. You can't just discount this and you can't just assume that I'm like some genie. You rub me in the right way and I'll respond the way you want. You see, God is saying your sin is horrific and it is deadly serious. And so verse 5, God gets them to see, therefore I cut you, that is I slay you in pieces with my prophets. You see, what God's prophets have said has come true. I killed you with the words of my mouth and my judgments flash like lightning upon you. Now, do you, do you see their attitude? Though they had good intentions, let's come back to God. They had good intentions, but their attitude towards God was like, well, let's just sweep our past under the carpet. God will forgive us. That is God's job. He's bound to forgive us. And so here, their great danger, the, the great danger was that they thought with great confidence that they were now back on the inside with God that they have in fact come back on the inside with God. But they were yet still on the outside and God wanted them to see that. You think you're on the inside now, coming back to me? No, you're still on the outside. Where's your love? was God's response. And can't you see? Is he serious? You've taken the wrong approach back to me. 
And so, what is it then that God wants? What do we see from this passage? Well, how is anyone meant to approach God? Well, let's consider the story that we've been seeing over the last couple of weeks in that clip. Consider a story with a husband and a wife. They're, they're married, they've made huge promises of covenant faithfulness to each other, that they'll stick to one another until death separates them. But just like the video clips we've been watching over the past few weeks, right after getting married, the wife betrays the trust of the husband. The wife betrays and breaks the promises she made to her husband. She sleeps with another. She commits adultery. And more than that, she goes off and prostitutes herself to other men. And after a while of this wild living, wild lifestyle, she eventually comes to her senses. All that promised fun from that lifestyle, all that excitement that was promised from that lifestyle is actually leaving her empty and dissatisfied and reeked with guilt. And so now she decides, I know what I'll do. I'm going to get back to my husband. He'll love me more than those other men. I'll get back to him. He'll protect me like none of those other men and I'll make it up to him. And this was what she was thinking. I'll make it up to him. I'll buy him a box of Cadbury favourites. Surely he'll be pleased, a box of chocolates. Surely he'll be overjoyed when he sees me coming home with a box of chocolates. Now, how do you think the husband would be feeling at this point? The husband's thinking, I've never been hurt like this ever in my life. I've never experienced this this hurt, this betrayal ever. My heart was torn apart when I found the clothes of other men in my home. But then one night she comes back, late one night, drunk, smelling of alcohol and vomit, looking filthy and disgusting. But she's holding a box of Cadbury favourites. Look what I brought for you. You must be pleased. You must be happy with me now. Now, what do you think you will be thinking at this point? What do you think you're doing? You think you can buy my love with a box of chocolates? Who do you think I am? A box of chocolates is going to make up for all the hurt, that betrayal that you've done towards me? You are out of your mind. The the last time I've forgiven you, this is not the first time, the last time I've forgiven you, 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 in fact, went straight out and did it all over again. Now, even if you were to buy all the chocolates in the world, that's not going to heal the hurt. You, You can't buy my love. You can't buy my forgiveness with a box of chocolates. And you see, that was exactly what the people of Israel were doing with God. They saw that things were bad. Worshipping idols, it was bad. They thought, let's go back to God. But they've come back with box of chocolates. They thought, we can buy back the love of God by their petty religious efforts, by their sacrifices, by their religious activities. Now, now these people, they, they knew that, that they were wounded and needed healing. So that's why they came back to God. But they did not see that they were wayward and evil and wicked and needed God's mercy. You see, God doesn't want their petty efforts, their religious efforts. In fact, their petty religious efforts were offensive to God. 
It's just like giving God a box of chocolate. It's like God needs it. And so you see here in the final verse what God in fact wants. Verse 6, For I desire mercy, not sacrifice and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. You see, God desires to show mercy. He wants to show mercy. He wants them to plead for mercy and they will get it. Don't presume that you can buy mercy. God wants genuine, deep, living knowledge of him. Not just knowing about him, but knowing him. And so if we come back to that story about that husband and wife. So if this wife came back, this time not with a box of chocolates, thinking this will surely satisfy my husband, but now this time she comes back on bended knees, pleading with her heart, I am wrong. I have wronged you deeply. I have hurt you deeply. I come now with empty hands. Empty hands. I come with a broken heart. I come knowing I don't deserve anything from you, let alone your love. But I now plead for your mercy. I plead for your forgiveness. And so please take me back. Now what would a husband of that wife do? But what did God do? What would God do? Well, God's answer will be, well, of course, of course, of course. I want to show mercy. You've hurt me in the biggest way. We will not forget that. You've hurt me in the biggest way, but I love you more. I love you that much more. And so what's the right approach to God? Well, it is like this, to come to him with empty hands, pleading for mercy, seeking mercy, Have mercy on me, a sinner. I have nothing. I have nothing. I am nothing. I depend on you. I am at your mercy. You see, the only way anyone can approach God, this is important for us to understand, the only way is this way. The only way for anyone to be acceptable to to God, the only proper response to the love of God, is to seek his mercy, which he wants to give which he wants to show. And so this evening, as we reflect on this, as we reflect on how the Israelites went wrong, we need to ask ourselves this same question, don't we? How do we approach God today in 2015? What is the basis of our acceptance before God? And so tonight I do urge you to be honest You see, my fear is that there might be some who think they're in, but are in fact on the outside. And so tonight I urge you to be honest. Honest with yourself. Honest with God. Are you in the kingdom? If you are, rejoice, be glad and praise the Lord. Are you outside the kingdom? Then come in, see the goodness of God for you. See the offer that is available for you. Or do you think you're on the inside but you're not really sure? Well, we want you to be clear tonight. You see, if Jesus was to return tonight and Jesus was to ask you, why would I let you into my kingdom? What would you say? Lord, Lord, did I not attend church every week, every Sunday and on some Sundays twice? Surely that should please you, Lord. Lord, Lord, did I not teach Sunday school 
for many years, and youth group for many years, and served in growth groups for many years. Surely that will satisfy you. Surely that will be enough to let me in, for you to let me in. Or, or Lord, Lord, didn't I give you my hard-earned money? I even tithe sometimes. Surely that is sufficient for you. Or Lord, Lord, didn't I, I sing your praises each week when I met with the church? And even in June, surely that should be enough to please you. Oh Lord, Lord, did I not give birth to even Presbyterian kids? Surely that is enough to please you. But if that is the basis, if those things are the basis of my approach to God, what do you think God will say? If we stand there before God, what do you think God will say? I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. You see, even though we might fool those around us each week as we meet. We might be able to fool those around us with our lip service, with our church attendance, with our good behaviour. Even though we might even fool ourselves that we're genuine Christians. There's no fooling God, is there? There will never be fooling God. God sees right into our hearts. And so if we think that we can bring anything to the table, my church efforts, my religious activities, my wonderful service, these things forms the basis of my acceptance before God, then you know which category we fall in? We fall into that third category, the category of those who think they're on the inside but are in fact on the outside. You see, our efforts is just like trying to buy God's love, trying to buy God's mercy with chocolates. That is ridiculous. And God will dismiss it as inadequate. Though intentions might be good, God will dismiss it. Now, Jonathan Edwards, a pastor from a while back, he said this, and he showed this contrast really well. All your righteousness would have no more influence to uphold you and keep you out of hell than a spider's web would have to stop a falling rock. Now, do you get that image? It's impossible for a spider's web to catch a falling rock. Uh, a rock. And there's no way that your righteousness will keep you from hell. And so what is it that God wants? What is it that God wants? It's not our religious activities. Not our religious activities. Not your sacrifices. If this is the basis you think for your acceptance before God, then you've got it all wrong. You've got God wrong. I don't want your stuff, in a sense, God says. I don't want your filthy rags, but I want you to come with empty hands. Empty hands, come to me with all your baggage. Come knowing your spiritual bankruptcy. Come knowing that you're sick in need of a healer. Come affirming, confessing, admitting your fault, your flaws, your brokenness, and you're in need of a forgiver. Come on bended knees, seeking for mercy, and I will show it. And I will show it. But don't ever think that God's mercy is cheap, God would say. Don't ever think that God's mercy is cheap. Don't ever presume that you can take God's mercy for granted. And don't ever dare offend God with our petty chocolate efforts. Because what did God do? What did God have to do so that his mercy would be for us, so that his mercy would rest upon us. 
Well, this is the glorious message of the gospel. This is the message that Hosea was waiting to see and to hear. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, his own beloved son, only beloved son, who bore our pain, who bore our filth, who bore our baggage, who bore the judgment we rightly deserve, so that his mercy will be upon us. The judgment of God fell on his son so that it won't be upon us. You see, when you come to understand this glorious gospel message, you come to understand something about us and about God. Timothy Keller here, he writes this. He says, we are more flawed and sinful than we ever dared believe. But yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. And so when Jesus came along, in the Gospel of Matthew, who did he come to save? Those upright, righteous people? Well, Jesus came to say, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Those who come with empty hands on bended knees and pleads, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And what will God do? He will show it. He will show it. He's ready to show his mercy. And that is the only basis for our acceptance before God. And God says, all this is yours. The kingdom of heaven now belongs to you. Isn't that glorious message to hear? Let that be an encouragement to you, but let that make clear to you where you in fact stand. Come Come and come. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you that you don't need our filthy rags. You don't need our religious efforts, but you want to show mercy. And so help us to see that we are mere sinners in need of mercy. And so we come to you seeking your mercy, seeking your forgiveness. And we know that all that is yes and amen in your Son, Jesus Christ. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.